Fun Ideas Productions presents the Fun Ideas Podcast. Hi, this is Mark Arnold, and welcome to Fun Ideas Podcast number 10. Today's guest is a film historian and host of his own podcast called The Online Movie Show. I think there will be a time in the future where everyone will have his or her own podcast, and all human interaction will be done this way. Seems like it's going that way. Phil has also acted in a number of independent films, and he has written over seven books on the subject of film, including The Greatest Bad Movies of All Time and The Encyclopedia of Underground Films. His latest book, entitled The Weirdest Movie Ever Made, is about the Patterson-Gimlin Bigfoot film from 1967. We discuss this and Phil's other projects on this episode. Here he is, Phil Hall. Okay, hi Phil. How are you? Uh, I can't complain, Mark, and yourself? Fine. I'm doing well. Uh, let's see. So, um, you recently published a book called The Weirdest Movie Ever Made, and I took a look at it, and it was about some Bigfoot film footage that Patterson Gimlin did, those are the people's names, back in 1967. I was kind of surprised it wasn't The Monkey's Head or some other movie like that, but hey, uh, what uh, possessed you to pick this particular uh, piece of film footage to write a book about? Well, I had finished my last book, which was called In Search of Lost Films, which came out in 2016, and I was eager to do another project, and I came up with an idea, and I approached my publisher, which is Bear Manor Media, and I had said uh, to Ben Omar, the publisher, I've got a great idea for a book. It's going to be called 100 Films That Changed the World, and it would be, uh, each would be an essay on the film that made a particular impact in terms of uh, social history, technology, uh, anything that had to do with, uh, with popular culture. And Ben said, that's a terrible idea. <laughs> he said, go back and just pick one film and write about that. And I went back to the list and I looked at the 100 films that I had compiled and I realized Ben was right. Uh, we didn't really need another book about Birth of a Nation or Citizen Kane or Gone with the Wind. But there was one film on the list that really was not written about from a cinematic perspective, and that was the Patterson-Gimlin film. And there have been books about Bigfoot, whether it exists, whether it doesn't exist, but there hadn't been any book that looked at the Patterson-Gimlin film in terms of the impact it made on the cinematic culture and the wider popular culture. Now, for the listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, the Patterson-Gimlin film is that grainy, shaky 59 seconds of 16-millimeter footage that supposedly shows Bigfoot walking through the woods in California. And everything we know about Bigfoot and the, the whole Sasquatch phenomenon comes from those 59 seconds of film. Wow. And that's where the, the book came from. So there is no real discussion about Bigfoot prior to this film? Well, there had been discussions about Bigfoot, but whether or not Bigfoot was real or whether it was fake, a lot of people look at the film, and some people say, well, it's obviously a man in a suit, and other people say, no, this can't be a man in a suit, look how it moves, look at the uh, the muscles under the fur, uh, look how wide the, the gate is when he's walking, uh, so there's been that kind of debate, but nobody really looked at the film as a work of cinema. I mean, they, they looked at it as 
as whether or not this is a hoax or whether or not this is actual footage of a Sasquatch. Hmm. And I decided to take a different perspective and to examine the film, uh, the film's history, uh, also the distribution of the film, and a very key point, which a lot of people don't realize, is how this film inserted Bigfoot into the popular culture. Right. Now, I was a kid in the 1970s, and back then you couldn't turn on the TV or open a magazine or even go to the movies without seeing something related to Bigfoot. And for people of my generation, Bigfoot was always there. But when writing the book, I realized there had to be a point when Bigfoot wasn't there and somehow got into the popular culture and then became commonplace. When exactly did that happen and how did it happen? And that was uh, really the crux of the book. Okay, because, you know, I'm, I'm roughly your same age, and, you know, I grew up in the 70s as well, and it's like, yeah, I just, it was always around. They even parodied it on Saturday Night Live once, with, Steve Martin was hosting, and they had Belushi with giant shoes, and he goes, I don't know what it is. He put on a big fur coat, and he had these huge feet, and it was just a guy in the, you know, it was a parody thing, and so, you know, but it was around, and there were occasional documentaries that said, is this really Bigfoot, or isn't it? And, you know, it's just what we grew up with that's correct yeah it's kind of like that in search of with leonard nimoy probably had an episode on it if i remember correctly. oh yeah that was actually in the first season i think it was either the fifth or sixth episode of the series okay where they go in search of bigfoot okay and uh, obviously they use the same footage actually they didn't oh they didn't okay i haven't no. seen it since the time it originally aired so you go back and look <laughs> at it uh they don't use the footage and that was also the thing too i was curious when people started to see this footage because we're talking 1967, so this isn't the age of the viral video. Right. If a film is shot, it has to be processed, and then it has to be uh, screened. And how do you get in front of people? Because Roger Patterson and Bob Gimlin were not in the film industry. They lived in Washington State, and they were both former rodeo riders who did odd jobs all over the place. They had no connections to the mass media or to the entertainment industry. Mm-hmm. Are, are they still around now? It's a long time ago, so it's like 50-plus well, years. Well, Patterson passed away in early 1972 uh, from cancer. Hmm. Bob Gimlin is still alive, hmm. and he makes occasional appearances around the country at conferences uh, that are devoted to all things Bigfoot. And as you can <laughs> imagine, he's treated like a rock star. Huh. Now, what does he say on it? Does he say that this footage is real, or is he oh, yeah. ambiguous, or does he say no? no. Oh, okay. No, both both men always insisted this was real, that they encountered a Sasquatch in the woods in Northern California. Uh, there had been some rumors floating around that Roger Patterson made a deathbed confession, and that's not true. <laughs> and Bob Gimlin has never deviated from the story that he's told. In fact, you can go onto YouTube and see a whole bunch of interviews he's made over the years, and it's really the same interview over and over. And mm-hmm. they sort of ask him the same questions, and he always gives the same answer as to what transpired. Okay, so never once did they say, hey, let's make this cute little film and see if we can pull the wool over people's eyes. It was actually what they thought they saw was really a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch. That's what they said. Okay. (laughs) Very good. And um, now, um, I know, like, comparing it to, say, Loch Ness Monster, there's been additional footage and photos and things, and some have been disputed and things like that in a similar vein, you know. Uh, Has there been any additional footage that uh, either they shot or anyone else shot that kind of helps corroborate that this, the Bigfoot indeed exists, or is it really just the one film and, you know, just legend? (laughs) That's been one of the troubling aspects of 
Patterson-Gimlin film's heritage and its legacy is that it's a one-of-a-kind film. Mm-hmm. Uh, there had never been any photographic evidence before of a Sasquatch, and since then, which we're talking 51 years ago, there has never been any other footage that people could look at and say, hey, wait a minute, maybe this is real. There have been people who, like John Belushi on Saturday Night Live, put on a fur coat or uh, a gorilla costume and went running about and uh, claimed, oh, look what I found, and people are like, you got to be kidding. Yeah. But, uh, no, it hasn't happened. And you would think even today, when everybody has a video camera on their phone, that somebody might somehow wind up with <laughs> footage of something. And it, it has just never happened. Uh, there, of course, there have been TV shows where people are supposedly uh, in search of Bigfoot. Uh, there was uh, that program is uh, Finding Bigfoot, which is, uh, I think it's on the, the Animal Planet or History Channel, one of those cable channels, which probably should be called Not Finding Bigfoot. <laughs> Right. They never find anything. I mean, this has been going on for several years now, where they're, they're running all over North America, and they have no video evidence, they have no audio evidence, there's no fur, there's no uh, droppings or excrement. Mm-hmm. So it's, oh, well, this, this obviously doesn't come from a bear, it has to be uh-huh. something else. They never came up with anything. And that's the mystery of the Patterson-Gimlin film, is that somehow or other these, these two guys were in the right place at the right time and saw this thing, which nobody ever saw again, which is also mm-hmm. something interesting, too. The uh, After the Sasquatch walks off into the woods and out of frame, uh, nobody has ever seen that particular specimen again. Hmm. Interesting. Um, now, were they calling it Bigfoot or Sasquatch or interchanging the, interchanging the names? Or what did they say when they saw that? We just saw a big creature or... What was that's an, yeah, that's interesting too, and that's something I never knew until I started doing the research for the book. The term Sasquatch, which is uh, loosely used to describe this type of a creature, uh, derives from several Native American tribes because the Sasquatch is a creature uh, primarily exists in Native American folklore, and the Sasquatch is sort of an anglicized version of several Indian names. Hmm. Uh, the name Bigfoot came from an incident that happened nine years prior to uh, Patterson and Gimlin picking up a camera. Uh, This was out in Humboldt, California, where apparently some oversized footprints were found near a construction site, and a local newspaper did an article about this, claiming there must be some strange being in the woods that could uh, create these large footprints, and that's when the, the word Bigfoot first came into use. And that was one of the things that inspired Roger Patterson. He was really the more aggressive of the two, mm-hmm. and he became obsessed with the whole concept of the Sasquatch, or what they used to call back then America's abominable snowman, because in the 50s and 60s, what we call the Yeti today in the Himalayas was routinely referred to as the abominable snowman. Mm-hmm. And there was only one problem with the, the, the discovery of those footprints in California. Many years later, uh, the son of uh, the person who discovered it admitted that his father created a hoax. <laughs> so there, there was no Bigfoot in Humboldt, California, but that's where 
Roger Patterson got word in 1967 that there might be something in that area. So he hmm. and Bob Gimlin went down there with a camera to go looking for it, which is itself is a, is a hilarious story because these guys felt they were going to make a documentary about this elusive creature, mm-hmm. but they only had one camera with them. It was a silent 16-millimeter camera, and it was actually a stolen camera. <laughs> uh, Roger Patterson had leased it from a camera store in Yakima, Washington, and never returned it. Oh. So when he got back home, uh, there was a warrant for him. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> he, he had this uh, stolen property, but they didn't have a backup camera. They didn't have sound. They didn't have... Uh, lights. They figured they could just shoot in natural daylight. They didn't even have a still camera with them hmm. as well. And this is kind of uh, really adventuresome that they're going out into the woods, because they, were, they weren't even in cars. They had a ride on horseback. They were that deep into the forest. Mm-hmm. Cars couldn't get in there. There were no roads. So the obvious question is, what would happen if the camera broke or if they used up film, because this is 16 millimeter film. This is not like video where you just keep shooting and shooting. Right. You only have a finite amount of film to, to work with. And, but somehow, uh, with more enthusiasm and talent, they went out and figured, uh, well, we're, we're going to make a movie. Hmm. And this footage is the only thing they shot, or the only sighting they claimed to have seen. They never... <laughs> They never saw a female, well, we're assuming it's a male, I should say, or other Sasquatches or Bigfoots or anything like that running around like as a family or tribe or something. No, and this is some of the confusion that uh, a lot of people have when they think of Bigfoot. When you think of Bigfoot, you usually think of a male creature. Yeah. But the, uh, the, the two guys saw in the woods, they believed was a female creature because it had floppy breasts. Oh. Uh, Either that or it was, it was a man with bitch tits, but it was <laughs> And that's why a lot of people refer to the Sasquatch by the name Patty, because it's assumed to be female. Ah, got it. And this is also something which is interesting, too, when you consider Bigfoot's impact on popular culture, because when you look at all the Bigfoot movies that came out afterwards, whether it was when Six Million Dollar Man met Bigfoot or Harry and the Hendersons or uh, all these countless cheapo Bigfoot films that have been made over the years, it's almost always a male. Right. And it's almost always a hostile male, uh, many of which have a very strong interest in having sex with uh, human females. (laughs) Whereas in the Patterson-Gimlin film, it appears to be a female who is indifferent to the humans, in fact is walking away from them as opposed to attacking them, let alone have carnal knowledge. Right. (laughs) Although there is an infamous R. Crumb Robert Crumb comic book story where there's a female Sasquatch and, you know, of course, relations happen, sexual relations and things like that. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> so, I mean, not everyone treats it, the character as a male, but yeah, I remember the Six Million Dollar Man episodes as a kid and I thought, wow, this is really silly. <laughs> but, uh, um, uh, I don't know, you know, it's like, I tend to not believe this type of stuff. At that time, at that age, probably 9, 10, 11, I was like, well, maybe, you know, um, what, what's your take on it? Have you, I mean, you're doing it just for research, but I mean, do you have any uh, feelings that any of this could be real at all, or totally fake, or what's your opinion? Yeah, it's funny, because you mentioned, um, back with the six million dollar man if you remember back in the 70s there was a whole bunch of stuff similar to this not just bigfoot but as you mentioned the Loch Ness monster uh there was uh, the 
Bermuda Triangle. There were a whole bunch of UFO sightings. Right. This, it, this is a wonderful time. It, I think Bigfoot could only have become part of the popular culture during the 70s. <laughs> You're yeah, probably Patterson right. And were trying in the late 60s to get people interested. And in 1968, there was just so much going on, and it was such a very uh, tumultuous period that nobody really paid attention when the film uh, was first shot and they was announced that they had this footage. It wasn't really until the 70s that uh, people in that decade somehow had this uh, funky vibe that they wanted to get into the paranormal and the cryptozoological and just something which is fringe science and Bigfoot permeated the culture and stayed there since. My own opinion, it's funny to say, you know, looking back in the 70s, I don't remember myself actually believing or disbelieving. I just thought it was uh, kind of cool that there was this big furry thing walking around in the woods and nobody's been able to catch it. Yeah. Uh, today, not being a kid, except maybe on the inside, I, I honestly don't know. And that's a cop-out answer, but it's an honest answer because I'd, li- I'd like to say, oh, this this is a hoax. Because, and there are a lot of red flags uh, surrounding the film, and certainly in its production and its processing, mm-hmm. that make you uh, pause to wonder whether or not uh, Patterson and Gimlin were playing tricks on us. But when you look at the film itself, it, it doesn't look like something that was created by two rodeo riders from Washington State. It's, I mean, if these guys were going to create a phony film, they obviously would get something that looked like a, a gorilla from a Bowery Boys movie mm-hmm. and have it go uh, wandering through. Right, right. This just doesn't look like that at all. Or hire Bob Burns and, to go out there. Yeah. <laughs> this, this isn't Charlie Gamora in, in, in a gorilla suit. This, 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 there's, something, yeah. there's something odd going on here. Yeah. If it's a fake, it's, it's the most elaborate hoax imaginable, but uh, at the risk of being nasty to Roger Patterson's memory and to Bob Gimler, who was obviously still with us, I don't think these guys are really that smart enough to have uh, created something so elaborate. Hmm. Interesting observation, yeah. Um, now, how? I guess we kind of touched on this, but you said there is some time because it was shot in 67 and didn't really achieve any sort of notoriety until the 70s. Um, how was it shown back then? Because it's not like you really show it on TV, per se. I mean, you could, you know, or put it in the movie theater since it's not, you know, ah. very long. You know, so how was it initially shown, or how did people find out about it? Okay, though, this is, this is an interesting story, so grab yourself a cup of something, because it's going to take a little time to, okay. uh, to tell it. The, uh, the guys came back from California to Washington State. They processed, the film was processed and they wanted to get scientific approval that this indeed was genuine. So they took the film to the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, and they decided to go there for two reasons. One was geographic, they're in Washington State, which is just south of Vancouver. And two, in British Columbia, there was a greater awareness of the Sasquatch legend because of the Native American tribes from the province. So they took it to the university and they showed it there, and the scientists who looked at it said, you've got to be kidding. And they told them to leave. But they felt that they had something of genuine value. Uh, They went back to Yakima, Washington, where they lived, and TV station KIMA showed the film on the evening news. And that was the first time it was telecast. So Uh this little station in Washington State has the honor of giving Bigfoot to the TV world. Uh, They got in touch with Life magazine, and Life magazine flew them to New York, with the idea that maybe they would do an article about the film, but they wanted to, Life magazine,
magazine. They just wanted to uh, make sure this is the real thing. So they got scientists from the American Museum of Natural History in the Bronx Zoo to look at the film, and they did. And the scientists said, you've got to be kidding. And Life magazine wasn't interested. But there was a guy named Ivan Sanderson who was writing for Argosy magazine, which was not as prestigious as Life magazine, but mm-hmm. he was into cryptozoology, and he believed in the film, and he managed to get the editors and the publishers of this magazine to do a story. And so in February 1968, that was the first time people saw pictures from the Patterson-Gimlin film. We have that, that famous picture of Bigfoot uh, pivoting back to look at the camera, and its arms are spread out very wide, mm-hmm. and it has that sort of, uh, it's a fuzzy picture, but it, it looks like there was a scowling face looking back at uh, the camera. That's when people first saw that film. Mm-hmm. And so that was published, and people mostly forgot about it afterwards because Argosy wasn't really that popular a magazine. And there was a good chance that the film and the whole Bigfoot story would have disappeared when the most remarkable thing happened. Uh, Roger Peterson received a phone call from the BBC. And how they heard about it, I don't know. Probably uh, from press coverage that came out of Canada because when they were in Vancouver, they did several interviews, including one with the Associated Press. Mm-hmm. And BBC wanted to show this footage on British television, but BBC uh, was running on a very low budget, and they couldn't afford to pay the licensing fee that Roger Patterson wanted. So Roger Patterson came up with an idea. He said, I'll give you the footage, because they were going to do a short documentary on this, as well as the whole Sasquatch legend, if we can use your film to show in the U.S. And the BBC said, you could do this, but you can't telecast it. Hmm. So Roger had no problem because he had no connections to TV anyway. So he got the film back from the BBC. He shot new footage of himself and some of his friends riding horses around Washington State talking about looking for Bigfoot. And he wound up with a documentary that ran about an hour, which he called Bigfoot America's Abominable Snowman. (laughs) And he took this on a platform release, city by city, town by town, first through the Northwest and then through the Midwest. And that's how people first started to see this film. It was actually in theaters on a big screen. And in towns where there were no theaters, they rented high school auditoriums and VFW halls. They would do screenings over the weekend, maybe two shows or three shows a day. And it was a platform release. And they made a ton of money with this. And he was able to do this for about uh, two and a half years. And that's where people started to uh, get a first glimpse of the Patterson-Gimlin film, and while this was going on, then he started licensing this out to other production companies, which turned out to be problematic because he didn't keep track of who he was licensing (laughs) to, and so several companies were told they had exclusive rights when they didn't. Uh, But uh, but these uh, films were the documentaries that were playing in theaters uh, in the early and mid-70s, a famous film called Mysterious Monsters, Mm -hmm. which played and that's when uh, more people started to see this film, and they started to learn more about what Bigfoot was supposedly all about. And that's how it got out there. Wow. That's a very <laughs> very strange story in a certain respect. Now, how did you find out about all this? Is this stuff written up pretty easily, or was it very difficult to get the research to find out the origins of all this? It took a year's worth of research, going through a lot of books, mm-hmm doing interviews, going back uh, through publications from the 60s and the 70s. I read the Argosy Magazine article. 
I read the original uh, coverage when they first came out of the forest in Humboldt, California. The local newspaper there did an article claiming that, saying that they claimed they saw Bigfoot. They didn't run any pictures from it, which I thought was a little strange that the newspaper would take it at face value. <laughs> uh, went through all sorts of uh, the weirdest uh, blogs imaginable. Uh, also had to track down a rumor that John Chambers, who was a makeup artist who won the Oscar for the Planet of the Apes makeup, created the, the Bigfoot suit, <laughs> and he, he denied this, uh, and actually found the interview, his last interview, uh, before he passed away, where he was just confronted by the writer and said, is, is this true? And he said, no, this I, he didn't even know these guys had nothing to do with it. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so and It's funny that when you read John Chambers' obituaries, both in the American and the British media, they actually cite the Patterson-Gimlin film, even though he had nothing to do with it, and unfortunately that's, uh, that's part of his legacy in his obituaries. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, and and it's, it's crazier and crazier. That's why I called the, the book the weirdest movie ever made, because not only is it weird that you're looking at this thing and you don't know what you're looking at, but the story behind it is just, it's just so astonishing. I, I never truly realized just how crazy... Uh, this little 59 seconds of film was and the craziness that it generated and still generates. Now, um, I don't want to spoil the book per se, but I mean, where does it go? Where you know, I only really kind of started the beginning of it just to kind of feel my way around it. Does it talk about uh, just you know how it's evolved to today? What people believe now, or what they think about, or uh, additional documentaries, or where, where, oh, yes. where does it go it, to? Where does the lead? Interesting. Okay. Um, so, from this point, do you, I know you've written other books and books on film and things like that. Are there any other stories, since you said that originally you had like 100 films that you're going to do, and Ben told you, no, just pick one or something, rather. Uh, are there any others that are at least similar to this or even different than this that uh, you would want to explore for a future book in the same way? You know, if there's any film that's even vaguely similar to the Patterson Gilman film, I think it would be the Sapruta film of the Kennedy assassination, mm -hmm. which was shot four years earlier. And it, it's almost the same thing in a way because it, it was shot by an amateur. Uh, it was not shot professionally. It was eight millimeter. It's violent, grainy color, shaky. And it's also witness to something that you're not supposed to be watching and that uh, no other camera has really seen. I mean, there were other films of the Kennedy assassination from other angles, but not as in-depth as what Zapruder had shot. Right. And that film's been dissected to death and watched over and over, and right. uh, all conspiracy theories of whether the, the bullet came from behind or above or across the street. And, I mean, that that was actually on the list of the hundred films as well, but that, that film has been written about to death, and I figured... Uh, I, I would love to do something about that as well as, as also the other films because, as I mentioned, there are two other films that did show uh, President Kennedy being killed, but they were shot from 
going into that because that subject's been covered so extensively. Right. Well, you're similar to me on books. I try to write about subjects, and I work with Bear Manor and Ben also, so I know him very well. Uh, yeah, I try to write about subjects that most people haven't written about, figuring, well, if there's ten other books, why? what will I bring to the table other than rewriting what's already written? Kind of. That's how I feel. I don't know if that's how you feel about it. but <laughs> It is a challenge as a writer because you don't want to do the same thing everybody's doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things I've been doing for about 15 years now. It's a weekly column uh, called The Bootleg Files. It began on Film Threat. It's now on Cinema Crazed. Mm -hmm. And this looks at uh, old-time films and uh, TV productions as well, including some contemporary stuff where applicable. But the catch is that the uh, only way you can see these productions through unauthorized copies, whether they're bootleg videos or DVDs or unauthorized postings on YouTube. Mm -hmm. And so it's film appreciation and film history, but it also takes into consideration how these films sort of fell through the cracks because you just uh, can't order them from Criterion or Kino Lorber or any label because uh, for one reason or another, uh, their copyrights uh, and the rights issues behind it are in limbo. In some cases, uh, films fell into the public domain, so you really can't get a good look at what the film is because they've been duped to death over the years. And this has been going on for 15 years, and I'm writing about old films. A lot of folks write about old films, but I'm taking it from a very different angle. And it, uh, when I started that back in 2003, I had put together a list of 25 films for the first bunch of columns, and I couldn't imagine that I'd be able to get more after that, and here it is 15 years later. <laughs> Well, let's back up a bit. You know, usually I start interviews with people just, you know, and I'll ask the question now. So tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in films. I mean, what what sparked it when you were a kid? Well, everybody loves movies, and I was no different from that. And uh, being a, a kid in the, in the 70s, I mean, there were all these great films that were on television. Uh, this was the pre-cable day, so the local TV channels uh, played old movies. I grew up in New York City, so we had uh, not only the, the three major networks, as well as a very good PBS station, but we also had three independent TV channels uh, on the dial, and they all showed the old movies, and I loved them as a kid. And as I grew older, I realized, you know, I'm not the only one who loves movies. Everybody loves movies. I wonder how you can make a living off of that love, and the easiest way to do that was to write about movies. Mm-hmm. And I've been writing about movies since I was in college. I was went to Pace University, and I was a film critic for my college newspaper for the four years I was there, and uh, branched out into professional writing about films. Uh, I've been doing that for a long time. I've written for the uh, New York Daily News, New York Times, Wired Magazine, and I've also worked in other aspects of the film world. I've been a, a film publicist for 10 years. I had my own public relations agency. Hmm. I've worked in film distribution, uh, helped get films into theaters and onto DVD. And I've also been fortunate enough to uh, to be a film actor. I've been in about 20 movies. Oh, wow, okay. Yeah, usually playing, uh, usually no budget horror films. Yeah. Uh, I play a creepy villain who gets badly killed at the end. Okay. Because uh, I, I only saw three. I, I was looking at little bios, was, and I don't even know if I've seen these, much less heard of them. Uh, Bikini Bloodbath, Mark of the Beast, and Monochromania, or Monochromia, sorry, I said yes, that wrong. Monochromia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, uh, those are, the, yeah. Are those like the most well known of these? Uh, no, those are the ones that I included. Uh, in my biography, I don't know how 
well-known they are, but uh, <laughs> a lot of these films are uh, really under the radar. Some of the films have won awards. I actually got a, an award for Best Supporting Actor at the B-Movie Film Festival in 2008 hmm. for Bikini Bloodbath Car Wash. And <laughs> <laughs> it, it, was, it was a tight competition. I saw the other films in the category, and it was, uh, I was, it was very generous of them to give me the award for that. <laughs> As far as acting goes, did you have any formal training or anything like that? Or uh... no, I did, and that's funny because. But I was a filmmaker. Uh, filmmaker. I was a film critic right. for many, many years. So I really was uh, spent all this time watching great acting and sort of figured out how to do it. Mm. And it's, it's sort of like learning uh, cooking by watching uh, your mother or your grandmother at the stove. It's right. like, oh, that's how it's done. And uh, somehow or other, the I got the hang of it and directors think I'm pretty good because I've been asked back over and over to do films and uh, it's been a lot of fun to uh, to do that I've, I've, I've done different uh, accents different types of characters playing uh, my favorite character was uh, I was an ex-marine transvestite hitman in a movie <laughs> called London Betty and actually that wasn't in the script uh, the script I was supposed to be a Russian hitman but one thing I can't do very well is a Russian accent oh. so I asked the director, uh, Tom Seymour, if uh, I could do this character, and I actually wrote some dialogue for him to see what it was, and he thought it was funny, and I got myself into the film uh, in drag. Actually, at the end of the film, is there's a wedding sequence, and I'm the maid of honor, and so wow. uh, I showed up to the set, and uh, the costume person said, what size dress do you wear? And I said, I have absolutely no idea. So uh, they, got, they got me this nice strapless dress, which uh, was a little too tight on me, so I had to just uh, inhale very, very deeply when the camera was rolling. Uh -huh. And it was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> now, um, all these films kind of have like a pseudo-horror or just gratuitous horror film? Is that what you tend to like to either act in and or write about, or is it just kind of what you kind of fell into? Well, I don't, I don't really write about horror that uh, frequently, unless it's maybe classic horror films. I'm yeah. not a big fan of contemporary horror films, strangely okay. enough. Uh, I get cast in horrors, and also a lot of horror comedy, too. That, that's just, uh, those are the low-budget films that are being made. I mean, I, I would love to do sure. <laughs> uh, serious uh, French art films or something Shakespearean, but uh, those films aren't being made by no-budget filmmakers. Uh, these, these people basically uh, pick up a machete and say, okay, now chase the, uh, <laughs> chase the girl across the <laughs> lift room, and that's... 
that's what's being unfortunate. That 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 is uh, where a lot of underground uh, cinema is today. Unfortunately, yeah. I used to run a film festival for a number of years, and I gave it up because uh, the prospect of just sitting through all these awful movies that were sent in for submission. I mean, it sounds <laughs> very very cruel, but yeah. you 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 don't really comprehend just how deep the well of mediocrity is until you actually sit through a pile of DVDs submitted to a film festival. Oh, wow. And it's uh, it's just, I, I couldn't take it anymore. It was just, uh, I felt bad because, uh, as I said earlier with Patterson and Gimlin, I mean, they, they bring more enthusiasm and talent to uh, the proceedings. And uh, those guys really were a bunch of goofballs, but a lot of people today <laughs> really take themselves seriously and want to make something mm-hmm. uh, that will be seen and make money off of it and have careers going. And it's just... Uh, particularly in, in, in low budget horror, it's just oh god, you, you don't uh, you don't know how bad bad can be until you <laughs> some of these films. Now this is the New England Underground Film Festival. I, I, That's correct. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. you don't do that anymore. No, I stopped so. doing it. I, I couldn't take it. Does you know? the festival continue, or you it, you? It, no, it, it continued. I, I was the festival. I was the, the programmer, the publicist, the host, uh, the producer, and. <laughs> Uh, it just it, it took up it also took up a lot of my time as yeah. well and uh, it just the quality just wasn't there and I also felt it wasn't fair to people who were paying money to go to a festival you're expecting to see something challenging or at least something entertaining and uh, I, I couldn't uh, promise that and even at the last festival uh, some of the films that were on the screen it was just uh, well we just have to fill time and hopefully uh, people will fall asleep <laughs> by the time the movies are on the screen Okay. Yeah. Well, now going back to your interests when you started writing or at least viewing films. Um, so, I've listened to enough a, a number of your online movie shows, and you kind of go all over the map. So, I mean, you've covered Benny Hill, you've covered Mae West, you've covered Betty Davis. You know, uh, any number of films. So, I mean, I guess you know, judging from that, you're mostly interested in classic films. But that's not necessarily the case, too. When you were younger, and it was just whatever was on TV, what were you most attracted to? What genre, typically, then? I just we just should clarify for people listening. I also have a podcast called the Online Movie Show, which you just referred to, and that's where we're talking about Benny Hill and Betty Davis and whatnot. Uh, but back when I was a kid, uh, I watched anything that was on TV. I, I was introduced to silent movies, uh, Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Harry Langdon, and I couldn't believe what I was watching. This was like live action cartoons. I loved cartoons, but this stuff was uh, even crazier. <laughs> I like the classic uh, comedies of Marx Brothers and Abbott and Costello, Laurel and Hardy. I saw my first foreign language film when I was 10 years old on uh, the local PBS station in New York, and that was Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Oh, wow. And I didn't have any problems with the subtitles, and it, it was such a one. That's a great film to introduce kids to for foreign films. Mm-hmm. And it, it's such a, such very different from Disney. Yes. Obviously, the Disney version didn't come until many years later, but it wasn't like any American fairy tale film either. It had this, this beautiful, dreamy, eerie quality to it, and so I got into that. And also, I was lucky because back in the 70s, there were a lot of great films playing in the theaters, and uh, my mother uh, would generously take me to uh, the, it seemed like almost every weekend, and not only classic stuff that was on the screen, but also crazy stuff like Airport 1975, <laughs> and if you remember, yeah, I, got to, I saw that at the UA Capri in the Bronx, and you know, even as a ten-year-old back then, watching that is like, there's something wrong with this movie. This is, <laughs> <laughs> this is with the, with the, the cross-eyed steward is flying 
the airplane. It's yes. Just, but you know something, stuff like that doesn't get made anymore. And I feel bad for a lot of kids today because, granted, I mean, I'm sure they're having fun watching Black Panther and uh, Spider-Man 57 or whatever's in the theater. But uh, I got to see stuff like Murder on the Orient Express in the theater. I got to uh, see great comedy films like What's Up Doc uh, to see that I saw a Dog Day Afternoon with Al Pacino uh, when I was 10 years old uh, this was this stuff was first run it was on the big screen and uh, that type of stuff isn't being made anymore and uh, right. kids can't get to see that in the theater and a lot of kids unfortunately don't even know these films exist unless maybe if they if their family has TCM on the cable lineup and if uh, well, fewer and fewer people are watching cable anymore so uh, a lot of these titles are lost to them. Yeah, it seems like if any kid today has seen any movie from the 70s, it's probably Star Wars or something like that. And, you know, not even Jaws or anything like that. I'm just trying to think of big films from the 70s. You know, probably not The Godfather anymore, which is really a shame. You know, things like that. Um, it sounds like, though, you were interested in all genres, all types, new, old, whatever it was. You just had a intense love of all cinema. Is that correct? That is correct. In fact, I had programmed a festival, an earlier festival in New York City. It was uh, uh, at the two booths, Den of Sin, Sin spelled C-I-N, short for cinema. And uh, we showed, uh, we would show retro films, and it would be month, every week we'd have uh, a different film. It would basically be grouped in two months. It would be the Den of uh, whatever, Den of Comedy, Den of Horror. And one month, it was. Uh, I decided, well, let's uh, get some vintage X-rated films and see yeah. what uh, kind of an audience we get. And I had gotten Deep Throat and uh, Debbie Does Dallas and Emmanuel uh, and was showing it. And, and I was sold out. And it was very funny. Wow. Uh, when I, and I, I remember I introduced uh, Debbie Does Dallas, and it was a standing room. Uh, they were They were... All the seats were taken. People were standing in the back of the space. It was it was a it was a cafe that was converted into a video lounge. And I introduced the and I said, you know, it's funny because when I started this program, we were showing serious art movies like Christ Beloved Country, and uh, we get one or two people coming in. And I said, here I am showing filth, and, and look at this. And uh, <laughs> the room was completely packed. But you know, it was also it was funny to see these uh, these, these old films because they're. Like, fascinating about a lot of those films is the attempt, and I'll say attempt, but sometimes they succeed, the attempt to actually tell a story and not just have a ton of sex scenes. Yeah, they, yeah. <laughs> no, they did. There were stories. And I, I mean, the film Emmanuel, the French film, uh, that was X-rated. It actually ran for a long time and it played in neighborhood theaters, which people today don't realize. Um, had a very elaborate story. And, and Deep Throat is actually a very, very funny movie. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's a comedy film. I mean, there, there's sex in it, but uh, thought went into writing the film and the perform. There were performances, and they were actually surprisingly very good. Uh, today, it's not like the uh, the plumber comes to uh, to fix the leak at the sink, and right. the next thing you know, 
it's uh, it's very very different. Yeah, and they actually ha- sometimes had like high quality cinematic effects. Uh, I remember like Flesh Gordon had. <laughs> You know, maybe oh, yeah. that's not the best example, or even the X-rated Alice in Wonderland, or something like that. You know, no, I mean, no thought went into this. It, it, this isn't just a, grab a, a video camera and, and just have fun. They, they actually had special effects, costumes, good music scores, location shooting a film like Misty Beethoven, for example. Uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a very very different world. The '70s was a great time for cinema. It was probably the last great time as yeah. well, and. and uh, you couldn't have that in any other decade. It's like, it's like mentioned earlier with Bigfoot. It was just the, the right time for this kind of a cinematic experience. Do you think what killed it was Heaven's Gate, or is that just an excuse? That's an excuse. Okay. Because <laughs> they always kind of attributed to, to that, which is ironic. It came out in 1980, but it's like, I go, this, I don't know, it just seems for me, I know we're veering off to a different tangent here, but, you know, it's like, you know, artists were having hits with Rocky films and Pink Panther films. How could one film do them in that quickly? But, you know, I know there's books yeah, that, about that. that but... That's another podcast, and yeah. I have to say about Heaven's Gate, I was actually one of the first critics uh, to give it a good review, because I came to the film, I didn't get to see it when it opened in 1980, I was in high school, mm-hmm. and it played for a week in New York, and then it was withdrawn, and then came back a few months later, edited, and was withdrawn again. And I didn't get to see the film until 1985, uh, when it was on VHS video, mm-hmm. and uh, there was a video store in my neighborhood that had it. And I was curious just to see how bad the film could be, because the reviews were so awful. And I remember uh, watching the film in 1985, I was in college at the time, I was like, you know, this isn't such a bad film. I mean, it, it, it's overlong, and maybe parts of it could have been edited, but it didn't deserve the, uh, the, the terrible reviews it got, and it didn't, should not have sunk the studio. And years later, I think it was right the late 90s or early 2000s, it was re-released in New York at the Film Forum Theater, mm-hmm. and I saw the film again, and I liked it even more, and I gave it, uh, I was writing for Film Threat, and I gave it a very good review, and I was actually the first critic to give that movie a positive review. I got a lot of grief from that. A lot of people <laughs> call me terrible names. But uh, today, I mean, it's on the Criterion label. It's played the film festivals to standing ovations. And mm-hmm. so uh, a lot of critical opinion of the film has changed over the years. I, I pretty much have the same history with that film. That's kind of interesting. When it came out... I was like 13 or 12 or whatever, so I didn't have any interest in it. And it's like westerns were never my favorite genre, uh, except for maybe stuff like Blazing Saddles or something. I mean, I've learned to appreciate it more as I've gotten older. But um, I probably did see it like in the mid to late 80s, and I said, well, apart from being overlong, it's not that bad of a film. And I and I agree with you. It's like, why would this sink an entire studio? There must have been something going on beyond that. That you know, I know there is a book about it, and I kind of I, I read it, but you know, I don't even remember all the details in it. But it seemed like there was a lot of other stuff behind the scenes than the film itself. It was almost like the film was an excuse. <laughs> yeah, but. Uh, do you, do you think overall, bringing back to a more general level, is like uh, that there was just a general feeling from the '80s till now is to kind of reel it back in and not let so many auteurs out there, like you know, say Martin Scorsese, Francis Ford Coppola, you could even throw George Lucas in there, or any of those people that it kind of were doing their own thing for a period of time, but then had to really 
knuckle under the studio system again, you know, you know, later on. You know, I just have to say, for any Bigfoot fan who was wondering what happened to the Sasquatch, because we wound up in in Deep Throat, now Martin Scorsese, we'll be back to Bigfoot in, in a few minutes, so just be patient. Uh, I'll bring actually, it back. <laughs> okay, but in the 80s, I don't, I don't know if I agree with that uh, scenario, because okay. it also had an emergence of a lot of independent filmmakers, like Spike Lee and Susan Seidelman. True. Uh, well, Kevin Smith came later, but... Uh, you had, uh, there was a flourishing of independent cinema, so, I mean, the studios were obviously, uh, the show business is a business, and uh, a studio could maybe allow one or two films per year to uh, be a bit funky and experimental, but they have to make a profit. Uh, but there were filmmakers like David Lynch who emerged in the 80s uh, who were really outside of the norm, and a lot of the independent filmmakers uh, wound up being part of the studio system as well. So I think in the 80s, there was still a degree of creative freedom. I think it was probably into the 90s it started to become uh, a lot more uh, oppressive from a studio perspective that they, filmmakers really couldn't uh, hang loose and, and do their own thing. They, they were expected to toe the line. I think maybe the, uh, one of the last ones to, uh, to get in before that uh, the gates closed would have been Kevin Smith, because I, I don't think see how a movie like Clerks could have been made uh, right. by the late 90s. I think that film came out in 94. I think it, yeah. by 1999 it would have been impossible for him to have made the film, let alone have a, a big studio release it. Because hmm. that's an interesting thing, now I have to ponder that. But, you know, it's like, because um, w- would you argue that uh, there's any independent films being made today like um and it's the name of the film escaped escapes me it's the one that they made about the film uh that was really bad uh i can't think of the title i have not seen oh, it oh uh, james franco's film of yeah yeah that one um the original or the film that was made about it i mean in arguably aren't those kind of like independent films in a certain respect well, uh, Tommy Wiseau is kind of like an independent film, but not quite. It's uh, it's not, it's <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's a disaster, which is why the film is called The Disaster Artist. Right. Um, what is independent filmmaking anymore? Because to me, independent films are sort of like Hollywood light. These yeah. they, okay. they tend to be lower budget films. They tend to be uh, made strictly for awards bait, not really for audiences. Uh, Genuine independent filmmaking, as I remember it, uh, like Spike Lee's She's Gotta Have It, going back to the 80s, or Cassavetti's films from the 70s, that doesn't exist anymore. Hmm, Uh, A lot of the stuff that's considered independent today, uh, no, uh, there's some studio uh, money there, or or some investment coming in. It's not that kind of uh, a situation anymore, unfortunately. Uh, Tommy was so, uh, and, and that's, I mean, that was just really a fluke. Uh, this is somebody who had uh, too much money to play with and made a really terrible film that really by accident uh, wound up being discovered and laughed at to the point that uh, he was able to laugh all the way to the bank, even though I think he's still sort of clueless as to just what he created and why people <laughs> look at it the way they do. Hmm. Honestly, I'll be honest, Frank. I never really understood the uh, the appeal of the movie. I saw the film once. Yeah. I laughed. I mean, it's it, it's ridiculous. I was introduced to the film actually when I was making a movie as an actor called uh, Mark of the Beast, 
and everyone on the set was talking about the room, and I had not, not seen it, and somebody pulled out a laptop and showed me clips in the movie, and was like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, and when I got to see the film in its entirety, I mean, it was, uh, it gave me a laugh here and there, but it's not something that I'd uh, want to sit through, certainly not in midnight movie mm -hmm. screening, mm -hmm. and uh, I've not seen it again since. Is that the, the major difference then? I think you hit it on the head, is that um, it, real independent filmmaking, you're not getting money generally from the big studio. Is that the real difference? That's the difference. That's why it's okay. called independent, because you're not part of the studio. Okay. I mean, uh, we're so to his okay. credit, was an independent filmmaker. He was an independent artist. I wouldn't even call him an artist. Okay. He was independent. Let's just leave it at that. Okay, because I was thinking, you know, wouldn't somebody like, say... Wes Anderson be independent, but they're getting money from the studio, so I guess that negates that. But I mean, they're kind of doing their own thing. So, I, you know, they're not trying to follow prescribed Hollywood uh, CGI blow em up uh, superhero films or whatever, you know. There, there, there may be a handful of directors who are able to uh, create their own projects and call the shots for it, but they're, they're few and far between. You could really count them on your fingers. So that wouldn't be the same type of independence. Okay. No, Got I, it. I, Got I, it. Okay. Now I understand. Maybe, yeah. maybe go back to Bob. Right, okay. And, you know, same thing with Spike Lee, not the stuff he's doing today or any of the others. I got it. Okay, so, okay, that makes sense. Um, before I go back to your current book, I wanted to kind of touch on the other books you've written a little bit. Um, uh, I could just rattle them off if you have, you know, a little bit to say about it. Was your first book in, in, the Encyclopedia of Underground Films? Yeah, I did. That's right, the Encyclopedia of Underground Movies. That was... Uh Back in 19... What was that? It was 2004. It says 2004, yeah. Michael yeah. Productions. Uh, it's funny, that was not supposed to be the original title. It was supposed to be called Never Coming to a Theater Near You because it was about <laughs> underground movies. Mm -hmm. But as luck was had that Kenneth Turan of the L.A. Times had a book by the same title coming out at the same time. Oh, wow. And rather than fight uh, for the title, the publisher uh, gave me the title Encyclopedia of Underground Movies, which is not entirely correct because it's... And was there, um, I believe I've seen that film, uh, that, that book, uh, but um, what type of films are covered in that book? Oh, those were underground films that were being made in the early 2000s. Okay. And uh, this was stuff, in, indeed, that, that weren't playing in theaters, and it wasn't on a video label. But I was working for Film Thread at the time, and I had the good fortune to uh, see these films uh, on screen as they were sent to me, and I was able to write about them, and it was uh, able to give attention to filmmakers like uh, Antro Ali and Jimmy Trainer and Michael Leggi, who were not well known to the wider public, but for aficionados of underground movies, they knew who they were and okay. were able to appreciate those films. Okay, and that was one of the questions I was going to have. You mentioned Film Threat. I used to read that magazine. I love that magazine. I'm sure I read your stuff from it back then. Was that like... Oh, no, no, I was never in the magazine. I oh, you were never in the magazine. magazine. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, apologize. So, but you were on the website then? Is that what yeah, it was? Okay. I was on the website from 2000 to 2015. Okay, so what you wrote for the website, that was kind of the basis for this film then? I mean, that's this correct. book? I'm sorry. Um, yeah, that's correct. Actually, Chris Gore, who's the publisher of Film Threat, was supposed to do the book, but uh, he didn't have time to do it, so uh, he basically outsourced it to me, and that got me into book publishing. Wow, okay, very cool. 
Um, then the next film, uh, the next book you have is independent, independent film distribution. Uh, sounds like that's pretty straightforward. Just how the process works. Is that correct? That's correct. It's how to uh, get your film seen in the festival circuit, how to put together a press kit, uh, how to hire a publicist, uh, different avenues for releasing films. Uh, It was a wonderful book, I have to say. It was one of my favorite of the books that I wrote. Unfortunately, the book is very, very badly dated. It came out in 2006, and uh, the world has changed since then. This was just really the dawning of... Uh, the social media age. I, I mean, there was a section about uh, using MySpace to promote your film. <laughs> that, that's how long ago it was. And uh, selling films on eBay, uh, selling actually VHS videos on eBay. So uh, it, it was a wonderful book, but it's, it's of no practical value today. Mm. I, I, I could go back and re- update it, but it's yeah. just... I'm, I really don't like to go back to my old work. I would just assume uh, leave it as, uh, as a relic of a distant past. Interesting, yeah. Um, then you uh, wrote uh, History of Independent Cinema? That's correct. Okay. And, and that's the, the title self-explanatory. This is yeah. uh, all about independent cinema from the silent era to today. Okay, and uh, it kind of explains what we just talked about, where uh, we don't really have that much independent cinema. So probably the majority of your film covers what era? I mean, I keep saying uh, film. <laughs> yeah. The, the book is everything from, from, from Edison to today. So okay. It's entire history. That's why it's called the history of independent cinema. Okay. But is was there a larger uh, part, like, during the 70s and 80s, or was it just, no, it, you're just it equally was, uh, covering everything? Maybe the 30s and 40s, I would oh, think. Oh, interesting. Yeah, because that's, that, was, that was a real flourishing era. People don't realize that. But there was a lot of great independent films being made then. Okay. And the next one I said, the greatest bad movies of all time. And I, I know you have uh, put links to some really weird, bizarre little films you found. <laughs> you know, some things that I don't know if you even are authorized to release or anything like that. Um, did some of that get into that book? Some of that, yeah, some of it came from the bootleg files. Yeah, bootleg uh, files, that's what I was trying to say. And uh, other stuff is uh, rather well known, like uh, Plan 9 from Out of Space, obviously, and Manos, the Hands of Fate, uh, and also some uh, some oddball films. There was uh, an independent film, or actually an underground film, called Christabel, which was based on the Samuel Coleridge poem. And I was expecting a, a serious uh, film when I heard about it, and I watched it. And it was mostly uh, a lot of topless women walking around, uh, repeating stanzas with strange music playing, and it's like, this is not Samuel Coleridge, and so <laughs> it was. It was. It was. They said it was a loose adaptation of Coleridge. I mean, if it was any looser, it would have fallen off the screen. It was, it was that strange, and it was. It's a great bad movie because you're watching it. It, it fills you with wonder. You wonder why did this thing get made, and and who, who, who authorized putting money into it. It's. Uh, those are the type of films uh, that are in uh, the greatest bad movies of all time. So, so what, in your opinion, qualifies something to be a great bad movie? It's something that just fascinates you. It holds. It's just so wrong that you can't look. <laughs> not, 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 not so much as a train wreck, but it's just everything about it, uh, in, in terms of, of the emotional aspects that uh, these films generate. It's like. You, you, you're really shocked that something like this uh, could have been created. I, one of my favorite all-time bad movies uh, was 
something called All This in World War II. Oh. I don't know if you've ever seen this. Yes, I have. Uh, <laughs> you have. And that's when they take uh, covers of the Beatles tunes and they put it against footage from World War II. <laughs> and, you know, the reason you saw that film is because of me. And this is something, it's, it's one of my favorite uh, uh, Smarty Pants bragging stories, but I had been looking for that film for a very long time yeah. because it was, there was a rumor that it had been destroyed because it was so bad. And it was not on video anywhere, and 20th right. Century Fox was not making it available. And I looked for years and years, and finally in some obscure web forum, which I think disappeared shortly afterwards, I found somebody who had a copy of it. He was a washing machine salesman in Northern Ireland, and it seems the film was broadcast on BBC, thank, again, those guys, they're, they're so funny over there, uh, one time in the 80s, and he videotaped it, and I asked him, can I buy a, uh, a copy of this? And he made me a copy and sent it over, but it was in the PAL format, and Oops. I didn't have... Uh, <laughs> Uh, European uh, conversion, and I had a friend who ran a bootleg video company, and I said to him, um, how would you like to have all this in World War II? And he said, dude, I've been looking for this film for years, and I said, I'll give you what was sent to me if you can just give me uh, an NTSC copy, which he did, which I still have, and every bootleg DVD that's on the market and all of the, the YouTube and uh, Daily Motion postings from this came from the video I got from the washing machine salesman in Northern Ireland. Wow, that's amazing. I had no idea because I, I yes, just used to always see the soundtrack, eventually bought it on vinyl yeah. years ago. I assumed there was a film, you know, that they wouldn't lie about such a thing, but yeah, like you, I never saw it, I, so I wasn't sure if it existed, and then, you know, eventually I did see it on a video, and I um, I saw it, but I didn't even think that it was that hard to find. <laughs> it was, and it's still not available. First of all, uh, yeah. 20th Century Fox has not released it in any home entertainment format. Uh, the soundtrack has never been on uh, CD, as far as I know. I think I it was believe only on you're right, vinyl. yeah, I have it on vinyl, yeah. And the... Uh, <laughs> The funny thing is that there was actually a hit song from that soundtrack, and that was Elton John's version of Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds. Right. <laughs> Very interesting. Um, looks like I skipped over one of your books here. I didn't mean to, but I got them well, out of order. Okay. That, that, well, that doesn't fit into the, the canon. That was called the new PR. No, I, that's not the one I was uh, that I skipped over. Um, uh, I, I skipped over oh, in, I know yeah, in uh, Search of Lost that? Films. That's the one I skipped over by accident. Is that well, true? You, you skipped over two. I oh. have the new PR, which is about the public relations industry, and I wrote a book with Rory Aronsky called What If They Lived, oh, yeah. which speculated on the lives of uh, Hollywood stars who died too young. But also, uh, the last book I did was uh, In Search of Lost Films, which came out two years ago, mm -hmm. and that was, a, that was a labor of love. That was uh, all about films that don't exist anymore. There are no prints of these films, or there are only fragments of them. And it was a very sad book to write. Actually, it, it went way over schedule because it was very depressing to just write about stuff that has been destroyed or lost over the years. So I and assume it has, like, London After Midnight. After Midnight, yep. And uh, Rogue Song, do you have that in there? Uh, Rogue Song, oh, definitely. Oh, God. That's okay. in there as well. Uh, also, the first Marx Brothers movie, Humorist, oh, yeah. is yeah. in there. But I also found, I realized, I mean, there are, around the world, it's not just uh, American films, there were actually uh, movies from Asia, Latin America, the Middle East, uh, that have disappeared, and, and this is actually films uh, that uh, were part of uh, 
national heritages. And it's not just silent movies either. Even as late as the 1970s, when the Khmer Rouge came into Cambodia, uh, they destroyed most of the Cambodian films that were oh, made wow. during the 60s and 70s. And so there's, uh, there's no uh, trace of these films existing anywhere in the world. Hmm. Now, what do you think, just briefly, uh, you know, like the new uh, uh, Orson Welles film that really wasn't completed? I mean, would that have qualified as a lost film? Cons uh, or? No, it wasn't. Okay. Well, it wasn't lost. It, it did exist. It was unfinished. Uh, okay. It was in. It was not released because of legal problems that had persisted for four decades. It wouldn't have made it into the book. There were. Uh, what's in the book, though, is Moby Dick rehearsed which he shot in London in the mid-50s and did not finish, and th there's no print of that as, as well. Uh, there are also no photos from the movie either, so we have no clue what it looked like. Oh, wow. And we know, actually, I was able to find out the last time the film was seen, it was, uh, it was in an office of a film company in London in the late 60s, but they didn't accept the, the shipment because uh, there was some uh, tax or fee attached to it, so they sent it back, and it's never been found again. Hmm. Uh, I, but there was also uh, Orson Welles' um, Too Much Johnson, which was the movie he made before Citizen Kane. It was in 1938. It was supposed to be uh, part of a stage show. It was a multimedia experiment. Mm -hmm. And that film was unfinished. Uh, he didn't use it on stage. And the film was supposedly destroyed in a fire at his home in Spain. But lo and behold, uh, it wound up many years later... Uh, Reemerging at a warehouse in Italy, and uh, it's been pieced together, and you can actually see it online. So uh, that's in the book. Okay. Um, do you cover things that actually have been kind of recreated, like the original version of the Gold Rush and things like that, or not really? No, that's not a lost film. Um, okay. And uh, I mean, if you're talking about the 1942 re-release of the Gold Rush, no, the uh, 25 no. original that they had to. Oh, well, the 25 still there. I mean, no, yeah. it's not lost. So I didn't, uh, okay, so I was just curious. And then something that officially hasn't been released, I know everybody's talked about it, The Day the Clown Cried. Is that considered a lost film or just not a released film? No, it's not a lost film. It's not okay. released. It, uh, okay. The footage exists. To, uh, just to understand the definition. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, it's, uh, lost means that you can't, it, it's just not there, period. No print anywhere. Uh, the Day the Clown Cried, uh, the footage does exist. Right. But it, uh, because of legal problems, it can't be shown. Right. Okay. So, uh, bringing it back full circle, you know, your current book is The Weirdest Movie Ever Made. Uh, I guess tell people how you can get copies of this or any of your other books. And, uh, well, the easiest way to get copies of my books is to go to uh, the online sites, go to Amazon. Uh, BarnesandNoble.com has my books. Uh, my publisher is Bear Mana Media. They have uh, my last four books, so you could uh, do a search by my name. Uh, if any of your listeners are living in England, uh, W.H. Smith, for their online site, you can get uh, the weirdest movie ever made over there, which is uh, kind of interesting. And because it wasn't for BBC, we wouldn't be having this conversation. <laughs> and uh, if you want to follow me, I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash philhall, which is easy enough. And uh, feel free to send me a message. And uh, do you have any uh, further books or movies or anything oh, yeah. else in the works at this time? Yes, I do. Um, I have a uh, book which should be out in two years. I'm working on it now uh, called Jesus Christ Movie Star. And <laughs> this is, uh, 
That's great. <laughs> it's a history of uh, how the uh, motion picture world has uh, depicted the New Testament. And so hmm. I'm in the midst of writing that now, and I'm watching uh, as many Jesus films as I can find. Jesus? No, no just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, is there any particularly notable ones that you can disclose at this moment that you've seen that kind of surprised you or anything at this moment? You know, I found something which was interesting. I had never heard of the film, and I, I got to watch it. It's an obscure movie from 1961 called The Sin of Jesus, and this was the first time that Jesus was depicted on screen, not as the Renaissance painting version of Jesus, and not even as a, as a holy figure, but as a more profane human individual, which is, of course, uh, years after that, uh, Pasolini's film, Gospel of St. Matthew, and uh, obviously Mel, uh, Mel Gibson's film and the Monty Python Life of Brian had uh, very different, uh, not so uh, sublime depictions of Jesus, but it started with Sin of Jesus. That was the first one that dared to deviate from the norm, and it was uh, it was a revelation to find this movie because it's, it's mostly unknown. Wow. Okay. That'd be something I'm looking forward to, but it sounds like I have a lot of your older books that I need to catch up with, including the current Bigfoot book. Um, anything else you'd like to say before we sign off? Well, I appreciate being on this podcast, and of course, uh, you've been a guest on my show, the online movie show with Phil Hall, which you can listen to on SoundCloud, and yes. there's a new episode every Monday, so uh, hopefully we'll have you back on that show okay. in the near future. You've uh, done a couple of shows uh uh, the Patty Freeling was one of them, and there was another one I, I can't remember offhand, but uh, they were very uh, interesting episodes and actually very well rated. So I uh, definitely would like to return the favor. Okay, well, um, the next book I have, it's been pushed back, is going to be The History of Alvin and the Chipmunks and also Ross Bagdasarian Sr. and Liberty Records and Format Films. It's kind of encompassing that whole thing with the Alvin show and everything like that, so... Uh, it's, supposed to, it's supposed to be out in February or March from Bear Manor. Bear Manor is the publisher for all our books. So. <laughs> it's a great company. They have a lot of good books, uh, a lot of good film books as well. Yes. So, mm -hmm. uh, by all means, people should check that out. Okay. And, uh, yes, uh, and I'll give a plug for their website. It's www.bearmanormedia.com. And they also have a Facebook page and things like that. So you can contact all of us. Uh, through Facebook, and um, you know, I want to thank you, Phil, for being a special guest here on the Fun Ideas Podcast, and thank you very much. Thank you so much, Mark. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you for listening, and thank you again, Phil Hall, for being my special guest. Episode number 11 will be coming soon. If you would like to comment and or be a guest on this podcast, please drop me a line at funideas.mark at gmail.com. Become a Patreon of Fun Ideas Productions. If everyone listening just contributed a dollar a month, that would be a tremendous help. This has been the Fun Ideas Podcast. This is Mark Arnold speaking. This episode is copyright 2018 Fun Ideas Productions. Thank you very much, and have a good night.